What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Kids face a lot of challenges as they grow and develop. Navigating how they feel about themselves and also how they interact with others can be very difficult. It's not a surprise, then, that many of these issues of growing up are central themes in children's literature, because books certainly are one of those places where kids go to get information about how to navigate the world. Stories are great because they provide the context that emotions and human interactions need to make sense. Because of this, I always love a great story that addresses important issues, but I especially love a great story that does this in a fun and unique way. One such book I recently read was Unicorn and Horse by David Miles and illustrated by Holly Mengert. In this story, Unicorn is perfect. He has great teeth, lots of friends, and gets to eat pink cupcakes at every meal. Horse, on the other hand, is not quite so perfect. He is frumpy, has to eat hay, and he wishes he was Unicorn. But when a nefarious duo decides to kidnap Unicorn so they can make a lot of money, the only one who can save him is Horse. With his speed and very large teeth, he is the perfect one to foil the plot. And when he saves the day, Horse finds that he can be his own kind of perfect. Using characters that are initially drawn as polar opposites, the story of Horse and Unicorn offers a clever adventure that addresses a theme directed at learning to be yourself. Additionally, themes of friendship, despite differences, also adds another layer of interest to the story. The words used to tell the story are direct and well-chosen, as they often add a touch of humor. The illustrations, which have a muted jewel-tone color palette, capture the personalities of the characters effortlessly. The balance between the text and the illustrations is well done. The text is nicely placed to flow with the pictures, and along with subtle touches like a change of background color to set off parts of the story, the whole book offers a delightful experience. So if you are looking for a book with a delightfully nostalgic feel that may remind some adult readers of classic golden books, here at Rachel's World, we suggest that you check out Unicorn and Horse because it will give adults and children something to enjoy. In a true dilemma, you find yourself facing two conflicting options. Which is best? Which do you choose? Our first guest, children's book author Jennifer Nielsen, talks about the dilemma at the heart of her latest novel, The Traitor's Game. The main character must choose between staying true to her beliefs or, well, let's not give it away. Jennifer Nielsen is a New York Times bestselling author. Her books include The Ascendance Trilogy, beginning with The False Prince, as well as The Mark of the Thief series and A Night Divided. Here's Rachel and Jennifer Nielsen. We're in studio today with Jennifer Nielsen. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. Well, we always love to have you on the show, and I am very excited to talk about your newest novel, The Traitor's Game. So to start off today, why don't you give a little synopsis for our audience of what it's about? All right. The Traitor's Game takes place in a kingdom with a rather heavy-handed and evil Lord Endrick, who has the throne. The chief enforcer's daughter is Kestra Dallasor. And she is on her way home one evening when she is uh, intercepted by the rebellion in the country. And they are going to force her to betray her family. 
And Kester wants no part of this. And she figures, you know what? What if I just bring down the rebellion instead? And this is a fine plan until she begins to understand the way they think. And all of a sudden, she realizes the rebellion might be right. And now she has to make a choice. She can save her family or she can save her country, but she will not be able to do both. Just that one synopsis, I just think so amazing. And when I read this book, I just I was riveted from the page one to the end. Thank you. Because it really has this intense kind of ethical dilemma at its center, right? Mm -hmm. And this intense sense of who's right and who do I believe? And there, there is this really powerful dichotomy that she's trying to navigate as she goes through, you know, is it her father? And, you know, is it how she wants to show him that she's a good daughter and that she's part of this family? She kind of seems to understand that there's some negative things going on here, but she doesn't want to betray that. And then the rebellion is the same way. She's like, okay, there's there's some positive things here, but, you know, they're betraying what I know. And this kind of ethical dilemma that she has is so fascinating. Where did this ethical balance come from for you? Why why tell this story? You know, as a coming of age sort of a story, it's a lot of what we've all experienced, you know, that as you grow up, beginning to realize my family isn't perfect and my family sometimes makes decisions that are not right or ethical, but I still love them. I still value them uh, in terms of the story itself. Uh, really, it, it came from a lot of historical dynamics of people who in, in actual history have been placed in circumstances where are you loyal to what you believe in or are you going to do what's in your best interest and, and those dilemmas that, that people have actually had to face in times past. That makes this so fascinating because I do see some of that kind of historical sense coming through in the novel. But it also is very much set in a, a very fictional kingdom, a very fantastical kingdom with a very, a very evil villain at its center. And that is one of the things that I love about your writing is particularly your fantasy. You know how to do villains really well. And, and you set us up for really understanding that this person is the evil and this is the context that we're trying to do. And then balancing the understanding of the characters behind that is just really interesting. So for me in this book, I think I, I love that kind of villainous nature of, of some of your characters. So how, how do you write villains? Because, you know, you're a very wonderful, Thank honest, you. law-abiding person, <laughs> right? And, and I think that would be hard if I was doing that to write in that mindset of this kind of villainous character. So how do you kind of get into that mode? See, I don't feel that it's that complicated. I feel that every one of us has a dark side of us. And if the villain were telling the story, uh, he or she would be the hero of the story. So all I do is reverse it from their mindset. So Lord Endrick, who is this villain, if, if we looked at the world through his perspective, you had these two clans that were constantly at war. And he would say, look, I've brought the peace because I have banished one and I have exerted my dominion over the other. And peace exists because of me and will always exist because of me. And I mean, yeah, a lot of people are going to have to die and nobody's free. But in his mind, he has uh, done a great thing to save this country. 
that's such a fascinating way to look at it. I love you breaking it down like that to to see how how you think of that. And it comes together so beautifully in this book. One of the things that's interesting to me about this book, too, is that it's a little more YA than than some of your other stuff. And I know that these are really arbitrary categories when we talk about, you know, middle grade that would be for like sixth, seventh, eighth graders and then YA. And I hate to make some of those arbitrary categories, but the, this is a little more mature. Um, the characters are more mature. Um, they're of an older age. They're facing a lot more intensity. Um, there's a little more romance, um, direct romance in this book um, than in some of your others. So why do you think this story needed to kind of have that maturity of more of a YA title? Um, I definitely think the trader's game world is simply more complex. The ethical decisions are are more complicated. And the relationship between Kestra and then one of the rebels, Simon, they are complex people in and of themselves. And, and so it just... It just requires a little older reader. And definitely there is a romantic element, which, you know, I said to my daughter because she's she's a huge fan of The False Prince, which is more of an upper middle grade. And I said, well, I think if you liked The False Prince, you're going to like The Traitor's Game. It's It's similar. It's just older. And she says, well, what do you mean older? And I said, OK, well, there's some kissing scenes, but I think you're going to like it. And she said, oh, mom. I do not want to write read a book about what you think is hot, right? <laughs> so my daughter was just wildly grossed out by the idea of reading her mom's kissing scenes. And then she texted me from college because she had started into the book. And she's like, oh, this is so disturbing. Like, what are you supposed to do if you like your mother's kissing scenes? <laughs> and so she's kind of wrestling with the book as a whole. But uh, but it's it's always a clean read because if it's if it's my name on a book, you could be a sixth, seventh, eighth grader and read it. You just know that the characters are going to kiss. Yeah. And and you're right. I think that the, just the complexity of the world brings a level of maturity to it. The Absolutely. complexity of the political situation in which the characters are engaged and the just the complexity of the moral things that they're wrestling with on on both ends of yeah. it. Now, sure. you did mention The False Prince, and I know that there are going to be a lot of people out there that are going to compare these two books mm-hmm. because they have a very similar kind of context, I guess is the best way to put it, um, set in a, a fictional kingdom that is politically in strife, and there is a reluctant hero who has to kind of save the kingdom. So what would you say to those people that say, oh, you know, you're just you're just rewriting The False Prince, but with, with a female character, which I disagree with, but... How, how do you see them as different? How do you see them as two separate kinds of books? You know, I would, I would look at it this way. If, if any person were to look at their group of friends, you could easily identify the similarities in all of your groups and friends. And you could say, but this friend is different from this friend. You would never, ever look at your group of friends and say, oh, it's just all one person, right? So Kestra is definitely more of a pleaser than Sage ever was. Sage doesn't care to please anybody. That's so true. He goes out of his way to just not please somebody. Kestra really does want to make people around her happy. Sage is much more into the technically I'm accurate sort of thing. And he'll be technically correct on everything but mislead like crazy. Uh, Kestra doesn't get into those subtleties. She's more about the overall game that's being played about the subtle manipulation of everything happening behind the scenes. And and Sage doesn't do that. 
Um, Sage is much more of a go into it without a plan and figure it out as you go along. Kestra is not that way. And frankly, Kestra's life is very complicated by not always knowing if she's on the right side. And Sage never doubts that. That is such a wonderful way to describe it. And I love when I have a writer that's that way, right? I I can totally trust you and I can say, okay, you know, Jennifer Nielsen, you can grow through these books and grow up into these others. And there's, you know, that kind of stability. And it's not necessarily the same series like, you know, a Harry Potter with seven books or something. It's growing and developing in a very unique way. So I appreciate the similarities and the differences as a very unique offering to us librarians who, who are trying to get books into the hands of kids. Thank you very, very much. I'm very proud of it. Well, you should be. And I want all our listeners to run out there and grab up a copy and and enter this amazing world, too, because it is extraordinary. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Children's and YA book author Jennifer Nielsen talking about her newest book, The Traitor's Game. Next, Dr. Ramona Kutri, professor of multicultural education at Brigham Young University, chats with Rachel about her experience growing up in poverty as a child of mixed ethnicities. She stresses the importance of children and adults learning more about other cultures that will enable them to have a deeper appreciation of people of other nationalities. And she also emphasizes be willing to give people the benefit of the doubt, regardless of what they look like. We're in studio with Ramona today. Welcome, Ramona. Thank you. Ramona, you are one of my colleagues here at Brigham Young University, and I am honored to introduce you to my listening audience today because you bring with you such a unique background and experience. And I'm excited for you to just share some personal tidbits of your life about how you got to be where you are, and then also about the wonderful multicultural family that you're currently raising And share with our listeners just some of those experiences that might help them to open their understanding of these different kinds of positions that we might be in life. And then also some tips and fun things about about how to engage with, with others that may be a little bit different than themselves. I love having people who have such great experiences just share. So tell us a little bit about your background. All right. Well, I grew up in California, and I was the poster child of a poor kid. My parents were um, both working under the table. Um, My parents were both drug addicts, and, and my father was a dealer. Yet they loved me immensely, and they loved me thoroughly. Yet, as your readers or your listeners might know, addiction uh, is stronger than love. And addiction does not allow parents to parent as they should. So in many regards, I did not grow up in an ideal home. And that experience positioned me to suffer in a lot of ways. It also positioned me to grow in a lot of ways. My dad is, my parents have both passed away now, but my dad was Korean Puerto Rican and my mom was white. But if you see me, I look white. And I think the fact that I looked white and continue to look white very much helped me avoid some of the pitfalls that others who are poor and um, are people of color are not given the benefit of the doubt. I think that um, in the small town in which I grew up, Ojai, California, 
was a lovely, wonderful um, place that in many ways, quote unquote, gave me the benefit of the doubt, allowed me to be my own person and have an identity separate than my parents, yet also recognizing that the influence of the poverty in which I grew up and the situations in which I grew up would always be inherently part of me. And I think that there are some real lessons to be learned um, from that small town in which I grew up, um, not judging others and not creating atmospheres of shame because a child who is growing up in poverty is already going to have enough shame given to them by the media, given to them just by the general population, general societal opinions of why people are poor. Usually it's thought to be because they're lazy, things like that. So I think that not judging and being willing to give people the benefit of the doubt, even when um, their own experiences might be frightening to you or frightening to your children. But I do want to really reiterate that I think oftentimes I was able to succeed and able to um, move beyond situations of material poverty because I am white looking. And so often children of color who are also in conditions of material poverty aren't given that same chance. And I'm using that term very carefully, material poverty versus cultural poverty. I grew up in material poverty. We did not have enough to eat, food insecurity, lights and gas turned off. I know how to make a fire to keep myself warm in the fireplace when we had no gas. Yet I didn't grow up in a culture um, of poverty, a culture that was um, not rich. I grew up in a very rich culture that gave me a lot of components to my identity. So I think it's really important to make that distinction. Um, Children who grow up in material poverty, their homes are not um, absent of culture, so to say. It's a different culture. Um, And so really being willing to give people the benefit of the doubt regardless of what they look like is very important. You mentioned my own family now. My husband and I have two biological children and we have two adopted children. Our two adopted children are um, black. Um, Our son is African-American birth father and birth mother. And our daughter is African-American birth mother. And her birth father is African-American and Honduran. And I think that Being part of a transracial family really does bring race to the forefront. And the color of one's skin precedes you before you go into any social circumstance in any society, but particularly here in the United States. So when my black son walks in the door, there is a different response to when my very white-looking daughter walks in, even though she's not officially white either because of my own um, ethnic background and that of my husband. But I think that um, being very cognizant that children of color experience the world differently than white children do, regardless of socioeconomic background. My own biological son, for example, is not white looking. He got all the all the pigment in the family, all the um, in when you are teaching your children to negotiate their lives in a predominantly white world that favors people who are white, privileges people who are white. Um, I need to raise my children to be very cognizant of that fact and how to behave, how to interact with authority figures so that they can keep themselves safe. And one thing that I would beg people who are white um, 
to do is to to become knowledgeable of the different circumstances in which children of color need white folks to advocate for them. Um, white children on the playground, if you hear somebody making fun of somebody because of their race, the color of their skin, their accent, their immigration status, stand up for them. And mothers and fathers and caregivers raise children who, white children who are willing to take that role of advocacy. Um, and same for parents. Um, if you are parents and caregivers, if you are um, in a situation in which you see children of color being treated unfairly, speak up. My little four-year-old um, is adorable and a little bit biased. No, you shouldn't be because, yes. <laughs> You've seen Def- pictures I, of yes, him. Yes, very adorable. <laughs> and he is an adorable little black four-year-old boy. And what I always try and stress is that he is going to grow up to be a black young man. And black young men are not seen as adorable and cute in our society. They are often stereotypically seen to be threatening, to be all sorts of adjectives that you can easily conjure to your mind because we've been socialized to think of young black men as threats. And so becoming cognizant of how we've been socialized to perceive children of color, um, I could explain. And and again, if I brought up the image of a young black girl or a young black woman and how they've been exoticized in our minds. So white folks who are out there listening, I would say become cognizant, critically reflect and critique. How come I th- those adjectives pop into my mind when I think of children of color, of whatever children, I'm speaking of my own children. And so I would really ask that as a mom so that we can become better able to advocate for children of color and for youth of color, for adults of color, so that we can know where where do these biases, how did they get into my mind and how do they serve me? Do the biases and the stereotypes that I have in my mind, do they help me be the kind of person I really want to be? Do they help me interact with the wide variety of people in my life, how I really want to interact with them in a way that um, shows the goodness in me and highlights the goodness in others? Or do the stereotypes and biases that I've been socialized and we've all been socialized with them prevent me from creating authentic relationships? Do they prevent me from um, advocating for people who are are not being treated fairly? And, and that is the world that we still exist and have. And I would really, again, just sincerely ask people who um, are in positions of power to use your power to advocate for those, especially in the scary time in which we exist now where white supremacy and um, the associated violence of white supremacy is on the rise. We as white people have such a role to play. And I say white people with a capital W. We have such an advocacy role to play and and it doesn't have to be out marching on the streets. It can be in your daily conversations. It can be in the way in which you raise your own children. And those um, conscious efforts can then reverberate out throughout society. Ramona, your clarity and passion for this subject truly comes through. And I am so grateful that you can share that with us today that your personal experience as well as your family experience just shows that these truths are so right, that 
we need to develop these kinds of social literacies and moral literacies in our children. We need to have them stand up. We need to say, if you're seeing these kinds of things going on, it's your job to say something and you shouldn't let your friends act this way. You shouldn't act this way. We really, as parents, need to kind of set an ultimatum, as it were, and say, this is how we react and this is how we live in this world. And that is what's going to make all of this change happen. So thank you so much, Ramona, for your honesty and integrity in helping us to be clear that these things shouldn't happen and that we need to stand up and teach our children to stand up. Thank you so much. Dr. Ramona Kutri, an expert in teacher education at BYU, sharing some of her experiences growing up as a child of mixed ethnicities and her emphasis to value people of all races, backgrounds, and cultures. We finish up the show with Katie Griffith, a BYU student who is studying elementary education, reviewing a book entitled Somebody Loves You, Mr. Hatch by Eileen Spinelli. My name is Katie Griffith, and I am an elementary education major student at BYU, and I have this really awesome book that I have been reading in my practicum experience with first graders. And they actually gave this book to me as a gift. And so it's called Somebody Loves You, Mr. Hatch. It's by Eileen Spinelli. And the pictures are by Paul Yalowitz. And so basically this book is about a middle-aged man. His name's Mr. Hatch. And he lives a pretty mundane life. He goes to work at the shoelace factory. He eats a mustard and cheese sandwich every day for lunch. And he doesn't really talk to anybody. Like even the people in the book say that he just kind of keeps to himself. He doesn't really have any friends, any family, and his life is just completely dull. And what I love in this book is that the pictures show that, and the colors and the tones show that. It's all gray. Even the greens look gray. The yellows look gray. Everything's just really bleak. But then, one random day, he gets this package. And so he asks the postman, Mr. Gruber, like, who is this from? He's like, well, I don't know. It's just a package for you. And he opens it up, and it's this ginormous heart-shaped box filled with candies. And Mr. Hatch notices that there's this card that says somebody loves you. Not addressed, like, from anybody. And so he takes it inside his house, and he's like, who could this be from? Like, what is this? And he tries to distract himself. He tries to dust and stuff. But then he just admits, he's like, I have a secret admirer, and this is great. He puts on a new tie, new shirt, puts on some aftershave, and he goes out. People start noticing him. He starts saying hello to people in the streets. He takes the box of chocolates to work the next day. He shares them with everyone. He's making friends just left and right. He feels so loved. And then even like when he goes back to the places where he'd always go, like the newspaper stand and the meat market, he would do service for all the people there. He'd be like, oh, I can watch your stand while you go go to the doctor. I'll go look for your lost daughter. Stuff like that. And he just makes so many friends. But then one day the postman comes back and he says, hey, do you still have that package? And Mr. Hatch is like, why? Yeah, I do. And it turns out that it was delivered to the wrong address. Mr. Hatch kind of gets a solemn look on his face. The picture shows a tear running down his face. And he realizes like, oh, nobody loves me after all. And right back to how it was in the beginning. The pictures are bleak and gray. He eats a cheese and mustard sandwich again. He doesn't talk to anyone. He sits in the corner of the lunchroom all by himself all over again. And he feels like he doesn't have any friends anymore. And so he's walking around all solemn. And everyone who is so happy with him and making all these new friends, they kind of notice, like, what is up with him? 
And so they all start to think about the reasons that they love Mr. Hatch. He served me this way. He served me this way. He said hello when I really needed it, and he brightened my day. And so they get an idea, and they're going to go make his day brighter by throwing him a big surprise party and having this big old banner that says, Everybody loves you, Mr. Hatch. And then Mr. Hatch realizes, like, wow, I guess somebody did love me after all. So that's the end of the book. And I just think this book is awesome because it really portrays what loneliness and friendship look like. And for kids, that's huge. Because, I mean, just as Mr. Hatch was eating alone in the cafeteria, like, I can guarantee you our first, second graders have eaten alone before. And so I'm sympathetic with that. And even though this book isn't told from the point of view of a child, they can relate to that. They can see, like, oh my gosh, he's so sad, he's so lonely. But then they can also see what actions have been taken and like what a difference makes when someone feels loved and when someone shows love to others. You make friends better, you make connections better. And so I just think it's an awesome book to have in the classroom and in your own home to help create a community of love and empathy. That was Katie Griffith, a BYU elementary education student, reviewing Somebody Loves You, Mr. Hatch, by Eileen Spinelli. Additional book reviews are available on the World's Awaiting page on byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting, a production of BYU Radio. Learn more about us at byuradio.org.